Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14 verses 22 to 32. We're doing a series titled Jesus is Greater and we're spending multiple weeks thinking through how great he truly is. So Matthew 14, 22 and following, I'm going to read the text, we'll pray and then we'll get to work. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, it reads like this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and this chance that we get to gather together under it. And we pray, God, that you by your spirit would speak to each and every one of us. And we would come away with a sense of the greatness of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we've got here the Lord of the circumstances, the Lord of creation, and the Lord of salvation. The Lord of the circumstances, he is the one who is controlling these things that are happening. There's a sense in the story that he is actually directing this discipleship project. He's got these followers of his, and he's doing things in a strategic way to help them be apprenticed to his way of life. Look at verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. That word immediately will show up multiple times throughout this story, but it's kind of that reality that he's doing something here where there's a connection between what's going on and what he's up to. So immediately means there's something that just happened, and then directly following that, he's going to do something new. And the connection is, there's a correlation. If he's, do, if he's at work in this world, if he's in control of these circumstances, then he is organizing things to accomplish his purposes. So immediately gives us this sense that we probably need to look over to what just happened. He actually just fed 5,000 people with a handful of loaves of bread. He took bread, he blessed it, he multiplied it, and he fed a crowd. And now he's telling his disciples to go and do this thing. Immediately following that event, he says, okay, go on to the other side. I've got some stuff I need to tend to here, and I'll meet up with you. So he directs his followers to get into the boat and go on ahead of him, and he's going to give them this incredible lesson. He's, he's helping them to learn things about himself. He's showing them, I can provide for you, I can feed you, but I'm also Lord over my creation. And these things need to come together in the hearts and minds of followers of Jesus so they would know how great he truly is. 
So he is directing them, and the ordinariness of what's happening is significant. He's telling them, I want you to commute to the other side of the lake. I want you to travel from here to there. And they listen to him, but it's in that transition where they learn one of the most profound things about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important for us because, in, in my opinion, in my dealing with many of you, there's a sense in us where we say, if Jesus called me to do something radical, I would be so pumped on it. I'm, I'm ready to perform a radical obedience. If he tells me to do something spectacular, I will jump at the opportunity. I'll drop everything. I'll go after that. I'll charge hard after whatever it is he wants me to do. But, but I hope that it's grandiose. I hope it's amazing. I hope it's big. And I'm on board with it. But sometimes Jesus just says, go to work. And a lot of times we kind of roll our eyes like, well, that's, that doesn't sound that cool. Like, that doesn't sound that impressive. What are we, what, what are we really going to do in the ordinariness of a work week? But Jesus is telling us something here. He's Lord of the circumstances, and you might learn the most profound lessons in the ordinariness of life. That if you'll follow his leadership into the mundane, he's there. If you follow his leadership through the unspectacular stuff of just listening to his voice in regular patterns of life, he's there. He tells his disciples to go across the lake, and he meets them there. He is Lord of the circumstances. He's Lord of the circumstances in the sense that he cares for you and he prays for you. In verse 23, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, obviously, this is a habit that is a good, good thing for anybody to do. All of us would be well served to make a habit of retreating and praying. But what I want to underline here is the fact that I think he's praying for his disciples. It would be weird for him to go up on the mountainside praying by himself and have it be completely unrelated to what's about to unfold. I believe he's praying for them and he's praying for what he's about to do and how they're going to respond. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't know what his prayer journal may have looked like. I don't know exactly what he was praying for there, but, but the context leads me to believe that he's praying for his people. The Bible tells me this in Hebrews 7. It says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And here's the important part, because he always lives to intercede for them. What is Jesus presently doing? Interceding. He's praying for us. He cares about you. He's sovereignly at work in this world that he's made. He's coordinating even the smallest details of your life, and, and he's praying for you in all of this, and he's doing this because he cares for you. He sees you, verses 23 and 24. It says, later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. But what it seems to be saying here is he could see them. He saw them out on the water, and he saw the desperate condition that they were in, and then he goes to them. And it's a really profound reality that God sees us in the storms of life, and, and he cares for us there. I uh, told you a few weeks ago that we started watching The Chosen, and I highly recommend it, which if I highly recommend Christian media, it's a big deal. It's probably pretty good, because I'm not accustomed to doing that. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that I think is cheesy and hokey, but The Chosen is beautiful. And there's an episode where it's telling the story of the call of Nathaniel. 
In the Bible, it talks about Nathaniel interacting with Jesus, and he says, I saw you under the tree, and he has this dialogue with him. But the way that it's told in The Chosen is, is profound and beautiful. Nathaniel goes through some hardships, and he's disappointed, to say the least. He's went out into this desert wilderness, and he sits under the tree, and he takes what he has worked so hard on and what has failed for him, and he, he burns it up. And he's praying in that moment, and he's praying with frustration and anger and angst, and he's saying, God, I've done all of this for you. I tried to do everything for you, and look what, look what it got me. And he takes the dust and he puts it on his head. It's something that they did back then to express their mourning. And he's just broken up over all of this. And he's saying, begins to look in the sky and he says, do you see me? And he's just crying out, do you see me? Later on in the episode, his friend Philip brings him to Jesus and they have this beautiful interaction. And Jesus says to him, in your lowest moment, when you were under that tree, I saw you. Now, the reason why this is so profound is because when we are broken and we feel abandoned by God, we feel like maybe he's even punishing us. We need to understand that he is the Lord of the circumstances and he's caring for us. He sees us. He, he, he takes notice of us. Now, there are some, some things going on even within our church family where it's just really, really hard and frustrating right now, and we're trying to interpret what's going on. And the, the heart language of a moment like that is to say things like this, God, and I'm very accustomed to this language, I've said it before, you're praying to God and you're saying, I'm trying everything I know to do to honor you. I'm trying to serve you and look at my life. I'm sinking. I'm desperate. I don't understand. I'm trying to do everything right by you, God, and this is how you repay me? I don't know if you've been there before, but there was a season in my life when everything was falling apart, and that's exactly how I prayed. God, I'm trying to follow you, trying to do everything right here, and I look at my life, and I look at the circumstances, and I look at the fact that I'm being buffeted by the wind and the waves, and I look at everything just crumbling around me, and I say, for real, God? Like, is this really how you're going to deal with me? Do you care? Did I, did, did I do something wrong? And in that moment, God is saying over us, I see you, and I'm coming to you. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. He is Lord of the circumstances, the stuff that you're going through right now. He's fully aware. He's praying for you. He cares deeply about your good. He's going to leverage these moments so that you would come to know him in a more profound way. And we might feel all the angst of, am I being punished? Why is my life so broken? Why does it look like this? But God wants to speak this truth over you. I see you and I care and I'm coming. He's Lord over his creation, verses 25 and 26. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, you didn't misread that. He literally walked on the water out to his followers. He's able to walk on water. He's in control of his creation. None of us can do this, okay? No one else can walk on water in our own strength or wisdom, but Jesus can march out onto the lake to the boat that he sent ahead of him. He has sovereignty over creation itself. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. They see this 
shadowy figure coming toward them in this storm, and they're thinking, guys, we're, th- this is a ghost. We're freaking out, and he comforts them by saying this. Verse 27, but Jesus immediately says, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Did you catch that? Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is fascinating because he doesn't go, hey, guys, it's just me. Hey, guys, don't worry, it's just me. You, you guys know, I'm your rabbi. Look, it's me. Don't worry. No, no, no. He says, take courage. And he, he says something like this. Take courage, I am. He actually uses, he hijacks a phrase that has been spoken of all throughout Scripture that is unique to God. He says, take courage, I am. It's language that has been used from the very beginning, Genesis 15, Genesis 26, Genesis 28, Genesis 46, Exodus 3, 14, Psalm 77. God is saying to his people, do not be afraid, for I am. God speaks that word, and it comforts his people. And Jesus is saying here, take courage, I am. He's telling us something about his identity. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Stanley Hauerwas puts it like this. This is the I am of Psalm 77, 19. The I am who provides a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, leaving footprints unseen. Jesus is the one who's saying to his followers, look, I know this is scary. I know this is terrifying. I know you don't understand what's going on in this moment, but I am take courage, don't be afraid. Jesus is communicating how awesome he truly is and his lordship over his entire creation. Verse 32, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. He's in control and he's trying to help us to to sense how great he truly is. March 15th, 2020, I stood right here and I preached a a message that God had given to us on that day. It was the first Sunday that we were displaced because of COVID. And so we got cameras and preaching to cameras and, you know, 20-ish of you guys came out here. But the message that God gave us on that day was very similar. It was the message of Jesus calming the storm. Another event similar to this one where he's he's in a boat, Jesus is in the boat with his followers. This time he's sleeping. They have to wake him up because the storm is so fierce that they fear they're going to sink. They wake him up and they say, don't you care? And he speaks and the wind obeys. The waves subside. He speaks this message of quiet, be still. And and, and in that moment, so March 15th, we're stepping into the beginning of a pandemic, a global pandemic, and we're wondering what's going to happen. And none of us know the details. None of us know how severe it will be. None of us know how long it's going to take. But that message, by the kindness of God, set the tone for us. I'm so grateful. It spoke to me. It steadied me in that moment. It prepared us for what we were going to go through. Months and months and months of adjustment and disruption and having to, you know, make those adjustments on the fly. But there was this reality that that began to settle on us. And I would describe it like this. There was a vibe of quiet, calm confidence. If the Lord of creation is with us, if he's able to quiet the storms, if he's able to heal the sick, if he's able to do whatever it is that he wants to do in creation and we're with him, 
we're going to be okay. No matter how fierce the wind might be blowing, no matter how huge the waves might seem, if we're with him, we're fine. And, and we're not imagining that everything's just going to, you know, just go right back to normal and everything's just going to be fine right away. But if he's with us, no matter what we go through together, we're going to be just fine. We're not going to add to the frenzy. We're not going to politicize everything we hear. We're not going to crusade for the truth. We've got the Lord with us. We're going to be okay. And that has been profound for me personally, and I hope it's been a breath of fresh air for you. The Lord of creation is with us. And the storms are real and they're hard, and we don't minimize that at all. But at the same time, we, we stake our confidence in him. We trust in him and what he is doing. He is Lord of creation. He's also Lord over salvation. Look at verses 28 to 31. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Jesus, I'm sorry, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, this teaches us a few different things about this Lord of salvation. The first thing I want to show you is that he, he is able to save even when our faith falters. The thing we need to come to understand is that it is the object of our faith that saves us, not the quality of it. We need to understand that even though Peter is sinking, Jesus wasn't like, oh, crud, he's, gonna, he's, he's a goner. I can't do anything here. He's got little faith. No, he just grabs him, just grabs him, and then corrects him. But he's not limited by our weak faith. It's the object of our faith that saves, not the quality of it. Now, this has been a theme in my ministry. Over the years, I've, I've dealt with numerous people who just struggle because they're wrestling with, is my faith sincere? Is it of good quality? Is it, is it sufficient? I just don't feel like I'm a sincere believer. And this idea has been rehearsed in my life and ministry over and over again where I'm telling people, no, here's what you need to understand. It's the object of your faith that will save you. I'm going to give you two illustrations. They're not mine. I've borrowed them from Tim Keller and Don Carson, but hopefully this will help you to, to think through this reality. Imagine with me the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. You guys remember Moses holds the staff out, the wind blows the water back, and they're told, walk across the sea on dry land. Now, there are some who I'm sure would be walking through this like, no way, this is awesome. I knew God was going to do it. He, I knew he was going to save us. I, he told us to wait on him, and we'd see his salvation. Here it is. This is awesome. Look at this. The, the water is holding up over here. We're marching across on dry ground. But other people would step into that situation, and they might go, I don't know if this is going to work. And they might be looking at the walls of water going, what if something gives way here? We're done. We will drown in this sea. And there could be this fearfulness and this anxiety, the whole march across the thing. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to hold up. I'm concerned here. What, what if this doesn't play out the way that I hope? And they both get to the other side. Who gets saved? It's a trick question. They both did. They both experienced God's salvation because of the promise of God, because of God's ability to do the saving work. Here's another example. Think, think with me about two 
Jewish individuals who are neighbors on the night of the Passover. And God has told them, here's what you need to do. This is through Moses. Here's what you need to do. Tonight, I'm going to visit the city with the angel of death. And every firstborn male will die. Unless, of course, you take a lamb, you slaughter that lamb, and you put blood on your doorposts. And then you cook that lamb, and you eat that lamb in haste, and tomorrow you will be delivered. You'll be freed from slavery in Egypt. You will be saved. And they're having this conversation. It's the, the night before this all unfolds. And these two individuals are, are sitting there, and the one guy says, man, are you, are you nervous about this? Are you scared? And the guy goes, no. Like, God is so faithful to us and all his promises. Like, we're ready. We've, we've picked out the lamb. We're, we're ready to do this thing. We're excited. We believe that God is going to care for us and take care of us in this moment. And, and we're, we're actually pretty thrilled about this. But are, are you scared? And the guy goes, yeah, I'm terrified. What if this doesn't work? What if we do this? I, I mean, we're planning to do it. We've picked out our lamb as well. We're planning to do this. But what if it doesn't work? The Egyptians hate our guts, and we are a stench in their nostrils. And if we're not, if we're not set free here, we're in trouble. I mean, I'm going to do it, but I'm just, I'm just being real. I'm, I'm a little nervous about it. They both slaughter the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts. They both cook up the lamb and eat it in haste. And here's the question. Who experienced God's salvation in that moment? Both of them. Because it wasn't the quality of the faith that saved them. It was the blood of the lamb. You see, your, your faith is in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And even when it falters, he is able to save even when it feels inconsistent, he reaches down and he picks him up. He's able to save us. We need to be encouraged by that because often our faith does falter. The second lesson that we see here is exactly that. Sometimes we get distracted by the, by the bigness of the circumstances. We look at the wind and the waves and we go, this can't work. I'm, I'm going down. We look at the circumstances, and because of how terrifying it is, we're distracted. We take our eyes off of the object of faith, and we begin to look and focus on the circumstances around us, and we go, there's no shot here. We're going to drown. When Peter looks away from his Lord and looks at the circumstances, he begins to sink. We need to understand that God is encouraging us to be people who fix our eyes on him. The stuff that's going on right now in our world and in our personal lives, they, it's very real and it's very hard. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But God is inviting us to set our eyes on him, to trust in him, and to be careful not to drift away from that to these other things. Because when you do, it's correctable. That's what Jesus does to him here. He corrects him. He tells him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So we need to understand that our faith is distractible and we need to set our eyes on the Lord himself. We also need to recognize that we're being taught here that we're invited to do what the Lord does. That intuition of Peter, I think that's the Christian intuition. It's saying if he's my, if I'm following him, if I'm apprenticing my life to him and he's doing that, I want to do that too. We, we emphasize this a, a lot around here. We don't 
just want people to come and spectate. I believe that the Spirit of God fills believers, and we are called to join Jesus in his mission. That he is telling us, you get to be like me. You get to do what I do. You get to step out of the boat and and begin to do significant ministry. We try to emphasize this every week. When, When we finish up our services, what do we do? We send you. Say, look, you don't just get to go home and relax today. You are sent on mission by the Lord himself. Go and be the church. Believe that Jesus is inviting you to do what he does, to step out in faith in his power and his ability to be at work in this world. And I think that that's a very exciting reality. We're invited to do what the Lord does. So we need to wrap this thing up now. Here's what we've seen. Jesus is Lord of the circumstances. He's working all things together for good. He's Lord over creation, so you can trust him. He's capable. He's Lord of salvation, so you can worship him. Verse 33 reads like this, Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The appropriate response to an encounter with the risen and reigning Christ is this, You are God. I worship you. So let's do that right now. If you would, please bow with me. We'll pray, and we'll respond in worship. Lord, we often have little faith. We worry about the things that are going on in our world and around us personally, and we get overwhelmed by it. But we're grateful, Lord, that you meet us there in that situation. You meet us right there in the ordinariness of our lives and the brokenness and the pain and the frustrations and you're there with us caring for us you look after us and you help us to understand who you are and what you've done and so lord we want to respond with worship we want to trust you we want to entrust ourselves to you and we want to worship you so lord right now incline our hearts to worship you amen amen if you would please stand with us